Please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. Thanks so much, guys, for helping us to sing God's praises. I hope that you realize what a blessing it is that we have people who are willing to serve us that way. Makes life much, much sweeter on a Sunday morning. Matthew chapter 18, and we're going to be looking this morning at verses 1 through 14. This is the word of God for us. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a little child... He put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin It would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray... Does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. You pray with me. Father, it has been sweet, sweet to sing your praises. It has been good to hear your word read. It's been good to pray with your people and fellowship. But here, Lord, we have the opportunity. The opportunity to open your word, breaking the bread of life. There's not something more important for us to do in our week-to-week routine. So, God, I ask you, speak to us in your word. Let us hear your holy voice and change our lives to your glory. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. What do you think about when you think about weak people? Do you you care? Do you like, oh man, I want to care for those people. Or do you feel sorry for them? Do you lash out against and take advantage of the weak? Do you try to help? Do you... Do you try to use the weak for your own benefit? Do you ignore the weak? Let's just pretend they don't exist. Or do you realize that you are one of them? Weak yourself. 
Today, we'll see Jesus talk to us about our own hearts and how we treat others around us, especially the weak. If you're a note taker, I want you to make room on your uh, notes for four points. Let's jump right in and let's see how Jesus calls us to live loving the little ones. Loving the little ones. So our first point, we're going to jump right into our text this morning because there's a lot of ground to cover. First point, humble yourself for heaven. That's the first lesson we're going to learn. Humble yourself for heaven. Verses 1 through 4 teach us this. It says, At that time the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. You know, sometimes the disciples of Jesus were strong, brave, godly men. Sometimes they squabbled like grumpy middle schoolers trying to establish who's the most popular. And in this instance, we do not see them at their best. When last we were in the Gospel according to Matthew, was that four weeks ago? Does it feel like a long time since we did Matthew? You glad to be back, I hope? Well, when last we were here, we saw several passages where Jesus was emphasizing two major points. The first thing he highlighted from the middle of 16 through 18 repeatedly was his identity, showing us that he is the Messiah, the promised one from God, the Son of God. We saw Jesus as God in flesh. But the other thing Jesus emphasized in that section was his mission. He came to the world not first to reign as a king or to set up a kingdom, but to die as a sacrifice to purchase the forgiveness of sinners like you and me. Well... This says at that time at the beginning of 18. So, I mean, likely around the time that Jesus sent Peter out to pay his taxes with the coin that he found in the mouth of the fish, which, by the way, I have no earthly idea how to track coin found in the mouth of a fish on your 1040. You're going to have to work that out yourself when it's tax season. We find that the disciples came to Jesus with a question. And this is not an innocent question that they ask. It is a sign of the selfishness and the worldliness still present in the hearts of the disciples. They want to know from Jesus, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, what did I just tell you? Jesus has been telling the disciples, hey guys, I need you to understand something. I'm going to die. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be abused and tortured and killed to pay for your sins. You know, one might think that that would have been a point that would have their attention. But instead, what we see is that the disciples, they want to know, well, who gets to be in charge if Jesus isn't around? They're worried about their position. They want to be honored by the others. They want to have the authority to tell everybody what to do. So how will Jesus respond when the twelve say, which one of us is number one? Notice before we consider Jesus' response what he doesn't say. Jesus doesn't hear say, oh, it's Peter. Remember, I told you right after transfiguration, right, that it's on you, or right before the transfiguration, it's on your faith. I'm going to build my church. Peter, you're the man. Jesus doesn't say that. Jesus does not hear say, Peter is the bishop of bishops who will be allowed to speak on my behalf when I'm gone. And that should help us to see the error in the Roman Catholic argument that Peter is the first pope and all popes after Peter speak with divine authority. 
No, Peter is no more the official leader of the disciples than are any of the other of the twelve. Yes, God used Peter in a mighty way in the book of Acts. But Peter is not the founder of the church. He's not the founder of the papacy. He's not the one who through him passes down all authority equal to that of scripture. But Jesus, instead of pointing to a disciple as the number one, get this, calls a little kid into the group. We don't know who this kid is. We don't know how old. The word might indicate a toddler. It would be almost like if I said, if I went and got Bella to come and hang out with us. <laughs> now, the young child with Jesus is very comfortable with him. The child comes over. Other recordings of this, you get the picture of Jesus just picking up this little one and holding him in his arms, right? So, I mean, you get a sweet kindness on Jesus' part. And he's going to use that child to teach his disciples And he says, truly, which means you all better pay attention because I'm serious. Jesus tells the disciples, if you want to be able, not to be number one in the kingdom of God, but if you want to be able to enter the kingdom of God at all, you have to do two things. Turn and become like this little child. The word turn is a repent word. You want to be part of God's kingdom? You have to repent. You've got to turn away from who you are and turn to who God wants you to be. You've got to turn away from thinking that you get anywhere by your own greatness or by your own strength or by your own will and turn to seek the mercy of Christ. You have to turn from trying to gain rank and power and instead turn to surrendering to the Lordship of Jesus. And Jesus says the humble state of this little child is central to what the disciples need to learn. Now, when you think humble, don't think, Someone just giving you the aw shucks grin. (laughs) Just gosh. No, that's not what he means when he means humble. In our world, children can hold a pretty high position in their homes. Have you ever noticed that in some homes children are treasured, perhaps spoiled? Some houses the children themselves rule the roost. In Jesus' day that really wasn't happening The whims of a child would not govern the home in Jesus' day. Children were seen as weak and needy and dependent. They did not assume they had the right to be the bosses in the family. The kids were defenseless and dependent on their parents to provide for them. And that is what humble meant here with Jesus. The disciples wanted Jesus to say, hey, which one of us has earned the highest seat in the kingdom of heaven? Jesus says, if you want heaven at all, you've got to do two things. You've got to repent and you've got to be humble. You've got to turn, repenting, stopping the foolish push to be number one in the group. And you've got to be humble, letting go of every bit of self-reliance in order to fully depend on Jesus for the mercy that you need. Now, In case you don't already see it, the call for the disciples is the same call for you and me. Repent. Christian or not, doesn't matter. Today is a really good day for you to repent. Turn away from your human tendency to think you could make it on your own. How many of you think you're strong enough to handle this life on your own? If you do, you're a fool. Repent. Turn from thinking you get to be your own boss, your own master. Turn and acknowledge that you are hopeless and helpless like a little child. Turn and seek the mercy of Christ. And be humble. 
To be humble is to recognize how lowly your state really is. See the truth that you can't earn yourself a high position in heaven. You can't earn anything for yourself other than the judgment of God. That's what I can earn. We're good at earning judgment. But you've got to approach Jesus in humility, resting on him and him alone for your salvation. And you cry out to Jesus and you acknowledge, I'm totally dependent on you and on your spirit for me to grow. I'm not going to get better if you don't help me make it happen. The Bible says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And Jesus calls for humility in his followers. So right now, check yourself and ask the Lord, Lord, am I humble? Ask the Lord, do I see myself as lowly as I should? Perhaps you need to actually consider how sinful you can be. Any of you think that you can't be pretty rough from time to time? Because I sure can. Think about how sinful you've been. How much judgment have you earned from God over your past decisions? Anybody want to come up and list them? I don't think so. How much wrath of God have we earned? Perhaps you should talk to God. And say, God, don't let me think of myself as better than anybody else on earth. Because, God, it's only your strength and goodness that give me any strength or any goodness. Your strength, your goodness, anything good in you is a gift given to you by God. Ask God to show you your weakness and compare it to his perfection. Ask God for help with humility. Humble yourself for heaven. And by the way, just because you think badly of yourself does not make you humble. People who beat themselves up and think badly of themselves are often still content to hide because they don't want people to see how rotten they are. And that's not humility. Humble yourself for heaven. Point number two. Do not lead others toward sin. Do not lead others toward sin. Verses 5 through 7. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones to, who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. After establishing the humble, lowly state of that little child that came into the circle of Jesus and the disciples, <coughs> Jesus continues to let that little one bring out some important teaching for his followers. And what Jesus is going to say here is not just about kids, children, but it's the Savior talking to the followers on how you and I deal with those who are weaker, who are easily taken advantage of, who are prone to temptation. <coughs> Jesus says that receiving a little one in his name is something that pleases Jesus. Our Savior wants us to see that we should be eager to be open and to be kind 
to those who aren't strong. You know, it's the tendency of most people to put forth an effort to show kindness to the people we think can benefit us. We reach out to the celebrities because we think, man, that person, if they ever got saved, they would have such a powerful testimony. I have seen pastors, I won't name them, but maybe I could, who bend over backwards to welcome wealthy business people into the church or former professional athletes. Even in the first century, James warned the church against favoring the wealthy and mistreating the poor. But to honor Jesus, we have to be eager to welcome and cherish those who are weak and who are needy. Sadly, the Savior has to say more to us than to simply call us to welcome the weak. Jesus has for the church a dire warning. He says, do not under any circumstances be a person who leads others into sin. Especially don't lead the weaker among us into sin. And the illustration Jesus uses here is just how, shows us how serious this warning is. He says, it would be better for you to have a very large, very heavy rock tied around your neck and for you to be thrown into the sea with that rock tied around your neck. That would be better for you than for you to be someone who leads other people into sin. In case you're wondering what Jesus means, he's telling you that death is preferable to misleading the weak. Now, he's not calling you to suicide if you've done it. But he's telling you, take this very seriously. Verse 7, Jesus acknowledges that he understands we live in a fallen world. The Lord has seen fit to allow temptations and trials to enter our lives. But that does not mean that it's okay to be the source of temptation to others. We are supposed to see that there is a woe, there is a curse for those who would pull people away from Jesus. Now, how does this all apply? Of course, this applies in a broad sense, right? One, one temptation here, sweet, smart, Bible-oriented reform people, is for us to sit here and just apply this to false teachers. Right? Wouldn't that be the comfortable way to apply this? I mean, there are, there have always been those who would use the Scripture in a false way to paint an incorrect picture of God. And we don't like it, do we? And that's true. We need to be careful. People that do that often paint that false picture of God so they can financially gain from others or rise in power or popularity. So those preachers out there on the network with the big hair and all the makeup and the really white teeth, they love to preach a false gospel, the prosperity gospel. If you just pray your prayer and believe in yourself, God will give you everything you ever wanted. They love to use that to milk money out of people who are weak in the faith so that they and their false churches can get richer and richer and richer. Or authors who write the false books about visits they made to heaven, about how Jesus told them, oh, you don't have to follow this teaching on the Bible on a certain topic. Or those authors who predicted exact date and time for the return of Jesus. Those people are always leading people away from the word of God so that they can make money or gain popularity from their books. That's what they're doing and we should be wary of such folks and we should warn them, you better watch out because a millstone around your neck and the ocean would be better than what you're doing. And many Christians need to hear that warning against false teachers because there are false teachers out there. But Jesus is calling us not to lead others to sin. 
too. He's saying it to you too. So this is the time when you should ask yourself, how might you be in danger of leading someone away from Christ and toward that which dishonors the Savior? And that's the point here, folks. Do not lead others to sin. So ask. Ask this question in your mind. Whom whom do you influence? Whom do you influence? Who sees what you do? Who sees how you act? How does your life direct the lives of others? If a person around you saw what you value, where would it lead them? Would your values, would your priorities point others to Jesus? Or would your values and your priorities point others away from Jesus? Do your words that you speak contain biblical truth? Or do your words, when you're not in a church meeting, ring true more of worldly philosophy than of the scriptures? Think about the ways that someone might lead another to sin. Some people lead others into sexual temptation, right? With the way that they present themselves, with the way that they they point others to things that they don't see. Some tempt others to sin by being unethical financially and drawing other people in with them. Hey, join me in this scheme. We'll make a lot of money. Some tempt others to sin by overindulging in alcohol or even food and then bringing others with them to follow that example. Christians, watch your life. Pray that God would not allow you to influence other people away from him. Don't lead others into sin. And the best way to lead, to avoid leading others into sin is for you to direct them toward the truth of the word of God, toward the Savior, toward growth in Christ. Do not lead others to sin. Check yourself and point people to Jesus. We'll talk about that more in a moment. Third point. Cut temptations out of your own life. Cut temptations out of your own life. Verses 8 and 9. Still with me, by the way? You're quiet this morning. Just want to make sure you hadn't left and I didn't know it. <laughs> Verse 8 says, If your hand or your foot causes you to, or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. Back in Matthew 5, 27 to 30, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said something almost identical to this, right? By the way, that tells us something. Throughout his ministry, Jesus said similar things and used similar illustrations in a variety of instances. That's helpful to know, right? You ever have a hard time figuring out why Jesus Jesus said it, and it's recorded this way in Matthew, but it's recorded this way in Mark. It's recorded this way in Matthew, but it's in this setting. The setting is totally different in Luke or John. Get this. This is, a, this is one of those like theological earthquakes for people that want to be critics of the Bible. It's actually feasible that Jesus said the same thing in two different settings. Think about it. Is there anything that someone would look at you and say, he always says that, she always says it that way? 
Do you have a phrase that you use or an illustration that you use that everyone in the room has heard already? By the way, if you don't think you do, you do. (laughs) So it's actually feasible that Jesus used the gouge out your eye, cut off your foot thing in more than one place. That's why it's in the Sermon on the Mount and here in Matthew 18. Again, you may say, obviously, that's true. But the moment somebody tries to rub in your face, well, in Matthew it says he said it this way, but in Mark he says he said it, says he said it that way. The Bible's got errors. You can say, no, I don't think so. <laughs> Have you ever said something in one room and then said it in another room and maybe said it slightly differently? Get over it. Now, obviously, what Jesus says here is pretty gruesome, right? Can you imagine if we took this literally what we would look like as a bunch? But it is in keeping with the seriousness of the theme. It is better to have a millstone tied around your neck and you to be cast into the sea than it is for you to lead little ones into sin. At the same time, when you examine your life, it is better for you to cut off your hand, cut off your foot, gouge out your eye than for you to continue in sin. And before I explain that teaching, because we all know there's an explanation, please let the weight sink in. Just like in Sunday school, right? Feel the tension here, folks. Sin is a big deal. We fight it with everything we've got. To be clear, no, I do not believe that Jesus is advocating actual physical mutilation. Jesus is illustrating. He's showing you and me just how seriously we are to take issues of sin and righteousness. It would be better to cut off your hand than let it keep you in sin. Now, how, do I, how can we prove? Because you might say, now, now, Pastor, how can you prove that that's not a literal command and that we all shouldn't be a bunch of left-handed people in this room today? Some of the left-handed people are going, hey, wait a minute. <laughs> Did you know that the Latin word for, for left is the same word we get the word sinister from? God bless you, left-handed, sinister people. All right, so my wife is left-handed. <laughs> All right, I'm not going to say. Okay, so how do we know that this is not a literal command? Perhaps the simplest way is to realize that none of the things that Jesus said to cut off would prevent you from sinning. You cut off one hand, guess what? You got another one to sin with. Gouging out your eye would leave you another eye to sin with. And let me let you in on a secret. Even if a person's eyes don't work at all, they can still sin. That should show you that this is a figurative teaching. Eyes, hands, feet. That could be a way to express what you see, what you do, and where you go. But just because it's figurative doesn't make it less serious, folks. The radical tone is the point of this teaching. Is there something in your life that leads you to sin? Amputate it. Do whatever it takes to cut it out of your life. It might be inconvenient for you to do that. It might be embarrassing for you to do that. But Christians, hear this. If there's something in your life that regularly leads you into sin, that regularly brings up dangerous temptation, get it out of your life. Where do you fall? Get personal again. Where do you fall? Where do you most often fail? 
what feeds that failure? Is there something you do in your life that when you've done it, it puts you in a place to easily fall? Take action. Let's do a couple examples. But please understand what I'm going to do here. These are just examples. Just examples. Maybe you like movies. Anybody in here like movies? But maybe some movies you watch lead you into temptation. Maybe the sexuality in the movies causes your imagination to run away with you. Maybe the violence in the movies makes you coarse. Maybe the language in the movies rubs off on you. If so, you must, you absolutely, no questions asked, must get it out of your life. Even if that means you never watch another single movie again until the day you die, get it out of your life. Because let me tell you something, there is nothing you can gain by watching a movie that's worth dishonoring Christ. What about something like drinking alcohol? Now, honest Christian look will tell you the Bible does not tell Christians that they can't have a sip of wine or something alcoholic. The Bible does not say thou shalt not, shalt not drink alcoholic. <laughs> but drunkenness is a sin. Always, in every way, being drunk is to be a sinner. Do you drink to the point of drunkenness? Or does drinking lead you into temptation? Does drinking lead you to fights or other frustrations? Friends, if alcohol leads you to sin in any way, get rid of it. There is nothing about a drink that is worth dishonoring Christ. And man, could we go on and on thinking it through. Think about the thing that you give yourself to that makes you lazy and unproductive and, and no longer care about life. Get rid of it. Or learn how to harness it. But the more important thing for you and me and, and for your life right now is not for me to give you the best illustrations you can get and give you all the right examples, but rather for you to actually stop and ask yourself, where am I often led into sin? What gets you? Because I bet you know what gets you. Is it when you go a certain place? Is it when you watch a certain thing? Is it when you hang out with certain people? Is it when you listen to certain music? What is it that presses your buttons and puts you in a position to personally sin against the Lord? Be ready and willing to cut such a thing out of your life if it is something that can be cut out of your life. Be ready to perform a radical spiritual amputation. Cut out of your life that which tempts you to sin. By the way, you can't blame your spouse here and cut them out. It's you. You tempt you to sin. You and your stuff tempt you to sin. Don't blame others here. But it could be your friends. You might need to change them. It could be where you go. You might need to change it. Love the Lord enough to say to him that his honor is worth more than your comfort. That may cause you to change your entertainment pattern. It may cause you to quit your job. It may cause you to sell your house and move to a different neighborhood. It may cause you to cut certain people out of your life. It will almost certainly require you to stop hiding your weaknesses and open up to another believer in the church to help you move forward. 
Sit down with a mature Christian. Honestly talk it through. Don't just let yourself make excuses to continue in a pattern of spiritual failure. Do what it takes to battle against sin. Cut temptations out of your own life. Fourth point, last point. Do lead others toward Christ. Do lead others toward Christ. 10 to 14. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is with. Uh, so it is. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. So in verses 1 through 4, Jesus called us to repent of self-focus and be humble like a child. Verses 5 to 7, Jesus called us to be super careful not to lead weak ones into sin. Now, after telling us to cut temptations out of our own life in 8 to 10, Jesus comes back and focuses again on the needy as he calls us to lead them toward the Lord. And you should see that there are two sides of the coin between points 2 and point 4. Don't lead others to sin. Do lead others toward Christ. Verse 10, by the way, pretty interesting, a little hard to interpret, but the overarching concept is easy. Do not despise the weak. Do not despise the needy. Do not despise the child that is constantly a theme in Scripture, right? But what's weird in that verse is that phrase that says, their angels constantly see the face of my Father in heaven. And there are people who have taken the end of verse 10 to say that children have individually assigned guardian angels who are there to protect them. Very, It's a wonderful life. Um, they think here Jesus is saying that the angels that belong to children get special access to the Lord. And I'll tell you, we actually can't find a single text that proves that wrong. At the same time, though, I don't think it's necessary to say that that's what this verse is fully claiming. Angels, what we know about them is that they are ministering spirits sent by God to help us accomplish God's will in God's people. Angels are servants of God. They are part of how the Lord takes care of us. But here's the thing. The Bible gives us very, very little insight into how they work, what they do, exactly which angels are where at what times and whether they change or any of that stuff. We just don't know that. And so there's not a real, there's not a real merit in speculating on how they work. But what we have to know here from this verse is God is, whether he's doing it by individual angels or just by using the angels, is that he is watching over the weak and he is watching over the needy. And it would be very wrong for you or for me to look down on or to despise or do harm to those who are the little ones, those who are the needy. And one more note for you who've noticed it, because some of you will have, is that there is no verse 11 in the ESV and a lot of modern translations. Did you guys already pick that up? How many of you going, what's wrong with my Bible? Is there a misprint? There's probably a footnote in yours. Uh, if you're using an old King James or even maybe the New King James Version, some other versions will have it there. The New American Standard Bible puts verse 11 in brackets. Any NASB people in the room? You got some brackets? You got to have some brackets there. You know, I, I don't care how they do it, right? But the point is, the text, of, uh, verse 11 in the NASB reads, For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. That's a fine line, right? 
By the way, that line is in the same account of this teaching from Jesus in the book of Luke. So this is no doubt words that came out of the mouth of Jesus, no doubt. But textual criticism will show us that this line is not always found in the earliest, most reliable manuscripts. Now, again, we're in that side point note section, but I want you to listen to me here for a second. This is important. I always say this when we come across one of these very few passages like this in the Bible. Don't let yourself be shocked or alarmed by a footnote that tells you that there's a textual variant. There is no textual variant out there that would change the gospel or any major elements of what we should believe as Christians. Not one. Does that verse being present or absent change anything about the passage? Not really. Most often, when you find a text variant, like this verse that, again, isn't in maybe the oldest manuscripts, most likely it is an explanatory note that a scribe would have put in a margin that over time worked its way into the text when somebody copied it. But here's the deal. God has allowed us to discover and keep track of older and more reliable manuscripts. And what God does is he shows us that we can be really confident about what text was in the original autographs of the scripture. And so here's the deal. Don't let this shake you. The fact that we point this verse out should give you confidence to know that, you know what, we handle the Bible with care. We handle the Bible with honesty. And at the same time, you can rest assured the Lord has kept his word for you to read and to know him. Why should this give you confidence? I would hate it if any of you went out of the church building, the, the, wherever we meet together, and someone challenged you with this, and you thought, oh my goodness, my pastor doesn't even know that there's a variant in the text. That's the way snooty college professors shake the faith of college students. I will tell you, I'll look them right in the eye. I know those are there. And you know what? The thing the snooty college professor won't do is actually show you the manuscript evidence and work to help you see that, yeah, there is a variant that was there when this was translated off 10th, 11th, 12th century manuscripts. And it changes nothing of the meaning of the text. But now we're even being more and more and more and more and more faithful. We're not hiding anything. There's no secret conspiracy. And we know, we know what's in the text. Now, let's get back to Jesus' teaching. We've got to wrap up. Jesus illustrates with a simple truth from the word of shepherding. If a shepherd has a sheep that wanders off, guess what the shepherd does? He goes and gets it. And when he finds that sheep and when he brings it home, he is super happy about the sheep coming home safely. He's just cool with that. And Jesus is telling you and me that God is just like that. God loves it. God, listen to me, God loves it when the weak and the needy, those who are wandering off, those who are in danger, when they are brought back to the fold. God loves it. God loves it when you and I go out and bring people to Jesus. And that might be through us going out and sharing the gospel with somebody who doesn't know Jesus, or it may be through us going to a Christian who's struggling and loving them back toward the family of God. Either way, God loves it. God absolutely loves it when you and I point other people to Jesus. But what do you do when you're the weak and the needy one? God loves it when you return. Thought about that? 
When you're the weak one, when you're the needy one, God loves it when you return. God loves it when you share your hurt with other believers and they walk with you back toward righteousness. Don't deny others the chance to help. Don't don't hide in your pain. Tell people what you need. Tell people where you need help. I will tell you that no one here can read your mind, except possibly my wife. There are times I wonder. But nobody here, not one of you, I don't care whether it's the most super mature Christian in the room or the babiest of baby Christians, not one of you is designed to handle this life on your own. I don't care how strong you are. You're not designed to do it. Truly, as you let other people help you, comfort you, hold you accountable, you let them point you to Jesus. And when you do that, you point them to Jesus too. So, as we wrap up, ask yourself how you might point somebody to Jesus. Who do you know that needs to hear the plan of salvation? Pray for the chance to tell that person the plan of salvation. Who do you know that needs to turn away from sin and return to the church? Ask the Lord to help you to love them and reach out to them. Who do you know is weak and neglected? Ask the Lord to help you to see that situation and honor him by helping. So what's Jesus saying to you in this passage today? Humble yourself for heaven. Don't you dare think you're strong or important on your own. Don't try to push yourself forward, but see that you are a needy child who has to come to Jesus for life. Don't lead other people towards sin. God will not receive kindly actions you take that lead others to temptation. Cut temptations out of your own life. God demands that you and I be willing to let go of anything that leads us away from him. But do lead others toward Christ. Show people the love of God, the word of God, and the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is how we love the little ones. That is how we love the needy ones, folks. That is how we love the ones like you and me. Let's bow together and pray. Lord, again, we're grateful for your word. More than that, Lord, we're grateful for your nature and how your word expresses who you are. You love the little ones and you call us to do the same thing. You love the needy, you call us to do the same thing. You love the needy and you show us that's who we are. And we shouldn't hide it. We shouldn't run from it. We shouldn't be so ashamed of it that we don't seek your grace. God, you show love in so many ways. My prayer, Lord, is that you will help us now. Help us now to honor you, to repent of sin, to grow in faith for your glory. We ask it in Jesus' holy name. Amen.